Welcome to the Breaking the Glass show with TQ Sinkungu. Together we'll dig inside the success stories of people of color and share those stories to inspire you. Then we'll break down their path to show you what they did so you can learn from their wisdom and follow in their footsteps. All right, welcome guys. You're here with TQ on the Breaking the Glass podcast. We're here to see what's up, say what's up, and talk to you about the way that people of color are breaking the glass in the community to let you know that it's those of us that are out there putting in that hard work, coming from places where we maybe didn't have a silver spoon in our mouth, and they're making it happen. And our hope and our expectation is that we'll tell you how the lives of these folks went who had a lot of success. But not only that, we'll tell you the steps to get there so you can follow them too. Now, welcome to episode three. But before we get started, I want to send a special shout out to those of you who have been leaving me ratings and reviews on iTunes. Thank you so much. I especially want to thank LaAsia, Bill C Pod One, T Chan Games, Mike G, and Rhino. Thank you so much for leaving me a rating and a five star review. And for the rest of you who haven't done it yet, please go to iTunes and help spread the word by leaving a rating and review. Your review will help me in this way. I want to get into the new and noteworthy podcast on iTunes, and your review will help me move up the rankings and get in that section. It's not just a personal goal for me, though. Getting a new and noteworthy will help other people see and find the show and spread the word about the work we're doing here at Glassbreakers. And if you're on social media, please like, comment, and share the posts. Now, let's get into the show. On the podcast today is Sean Randolph. I've known Sean for uh, a number of years. Man, probably, what, 10, almost 10 years we've known each other, I think. Yeah, man. And uh, church, we went to church together, been friends with one another, and also started a little bit of business together. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sean is an entrepreneur, a nonprofit professional. He's a grant writer, social enterprise consultant, and an impact investing innovator dedicated to harnessing some of the most profit-driven concepts in the private sector. He does things like private equity, investment banking, asset management, and then he mix, remixes those to be able to turn them into ways to make significant social environmental impact. Now, if you don't know what all those words mean, private equity, investment banking, uh, some of them c- confuse me too, I've told Sean. So we're going to learn about that today and what it means to, to be able to do that for you. And Sean is not just experimenting with this stuff. He's, he's been doing it for 10 years, working with organizational development, social enterprise consulting, he does project management. He's done a lot of grant writing. I remember when he's taking the grant writing classes and he's written and gained tens of the tens and tens and maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars. You could tell us, Sean, for um, different organizations. And he's done graduate coursework domestically, internationally, and all kinds of alternative finance, venture capital, and private equity. So this is a, a young, and he's a young man too. You know, uh, he, he's he's uh, just pressing really hard to make sure that he learns the private capital game so he can turn that into social impact. And so please welcome to the Breaking the Glass podcast, Sean Randolph. Sean, good to see you, man. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. So, Sean, let's start off a little bit and, and tell us about your story, man. Like, how did you grow up? Um, what was your life like as a youngster, man? Yeah, sure. So, uh, I'm originally from New Jersey. Um, I'm a military brat. My dad was in the Air Force, so I was actually born overseas. I was born in England at uh, on an Air Force base. Um, so, I ended up having like dual citizenship or something like that, being born on American soil in uh, the UK. Uh, but uh, shortly after being born, I want to say after about six months, my parents came back to the States. My dad was uh, out of the military, moved to New Jersey. And um, I spent probably the the growing up years in Irvington, New Jersey, which is right outside of Newark. Um, a lot of people here on the West Coast probably aren't familiar with Newark, but people from the East Coast know Newark is is uh, it's not the nicest place. It's not even all. spelled like that. You're saying Newark, but it's actually N-E-W-A-R-K, huh? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, y'all say a little different out there. 
yeah, it would say Newark, um, aka Brick City, you know. So just gotta gotta it's it's a whole different vibe out there. But yeah, I grew up in Irvington, right, right next to Newark, probably around maybe right before middle school, around then, you know, parents, you know, uh made it, made it out the hood, moved out to the suburbs, uh, to an area called Piscataway, um, which is near uh the main Rutgers University campus. So nicer area. Um, more diversity. Cause honestly, you know, growing up before moving to the suburbs, I didn't really see, uh, people who were not black or brown. So, you know, it was kind of a whole nother experience for me. Um, I think the interesting thing though, with this particular suburb is that over the next few years, many of the same kids from the same urban areas in New Jersey all started moving to this same suburban wow. area. Okay. So, uh, so I actually ended up having kids who I was in kindergarten, first grade, second grade with end up in the same high school as me, except they came out, you know, uh, late in late teens. So, uh, they were, they were a little more, they were a little more, uh, rough around the edges. Yeah. They, they were still a lot more rough around the edges. So, you know, they were seeing me and they're like, Hey, we remember you, you know, we seen you, you came up in the same place as us, but you're a little different. Did that change the neighborhood? I imagine like y'all oh. coming to the suburbs must have did something to them. Yeah, it did. What it, what ended up happening is you had a suburb. So aesthetically, it still looked nicer and, and all that. But, you know, you had a, a lot of activities that started picking up. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of the kids who moved in, they brought that gang stuff with them, you know. So um, and when you come into the suburbs where, you know, to be quite frank, quite frank, um, uh, a lot more softer kids are in the suburbs. Yeah. You know, some of them, they want to be a part of that gang culture. And, uh, and, and so they now had access to it and, and it, it jacked up a lot of stuff quite honestly. But, uh, did that, you know, did, how, so. did that lifestyle, that change in, in environment, did that affect how people in the, those areas? So like, first of all, was it a diverse area that you moved into or was it predominantly one race that you moved into? And then you guys were the diverse diversity. No, it was actually a, a pretty diverse area even before we got there. It was a pretty even mix of black, brown, and white. You know, usually white is still always the predominant uh, demographic, but it, but it was a good mix, you know. Um, was there yeah, like any kind of discrimination and all like that in the area? Did it change whenever the neighborhood started to change? Um, It depended. In our specific town, not so much, but when you started going, you know, to certain directions, like maybe more towards South Jersey, you know, areas like Warren and, and other and other areas like that. Yeah, definitely. You could feel the difference. You know, I remember my mother, she's an optician. She worked would work in several different offices all under the same parent company. And she had the home office where we live. But when she worked in like another office, you know, if she would have me come to work with her, I knew I had to act. You know, I had to be on my best behavior mm. when not that I couldn't be on my best behavior and elsewhere. But you know, I had to be extra, you know, make sure you straighten out your collar, speak. You don't say with, you say with, Sean. You speak like this, blah, blah, blah. These are my cohorts. So She would talk to you about that stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, okay. it was a conversation. So you knew when you went to certain areas, young man, you need to carry yourself a certain way. You're a reflection of your parents. Mm. Don't embarrass me because when we get back home, you know what it's going to be. Mm. Yeah, yeah, so. So please. that training started early. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, I... I it's unfortunate. Well, it's not unfortunate for me, but unfortunately, I have to mention, I mean, a huge part of me becoming who I was and being raised the way I was is because I was lucky enough to have both parents. Right. You know, 
And my dad was, you know, definitely actively involved in my life and and was the disciplinarian. So, you know, I, I didn't really need to be told two, three times, you know, like I said, he was former military. So I knew, yes, sir. No, sir. I'm going to take care of it. The trash will be out immediately. You don't even got to worry about it. I got that covered. Were you into um, more like a school type of kid or did that because you're an entrepreneur yourself now, you, you know, you're you're working in your own business. Did that start at a young age or were you more like, I'm going to go the traditional route when you were growing up? You know, I really didn't know. I, I wasn't a great student, you know, to to be just truthful about it. I wasn't a great student. I was probably a BC student, maybe maybe sometimes less than a C student. Uh, I, I just I, I didn't really enjoy learning about a broad spectrum of things. There was a couple, you know, three or four things I enjoyed learning about. Outside of that, I, it was hard for me to sit in a class and learn about something that I had no interest in. Um, but as far as the business interest, I, I got to say, and it's kind of funny, I loved Monopoly as a kid. Hmm. And I don't what know about how it? much it just it intrigued me so much. You have these big dollars, you're, you're buying real estate, you're owning, you're trying to compete against other people. With, and I didn't understand all these terms, assets and real estate and leasing and all that stuff back then. But I had a grasp of it and I loved playing it. Parents, cousins, whoever. I always wanted to play Monopoly. And it's funny, kind of funny side story. I always played Monopoly different. And what I would do, because this is very relevant to the work I'm in now, what I would do is I would buy up all the properties I could, you know, naturally. And what happens is in Monopoly, you get that competition where somebody has that third property you need to start building houses and stuff like that. Yeah. So what I would do is I would do off deal deals. So I'll say, you know what? I'll give you this third red or I'll give you the third green. But in, in exchange, you have to give me 20% cut of whatever money you make off <laughs> of once you build them houses. And whenever I land there, you can't charge me rent. Oh my goodness. So you were, you were an investor back then. Oh man, you know, I was 12, 13 years old, willing and dealing. So I could just sit back on Monopoly and let the game play out. By the end of the game, I can land anywhere I want on the board, not pay rent. Anyone else land there, I'm getting a cut. Wow. So it was interesting. Now, how did you move from what was the trip from there playing Monopoly um, mm -hmm. in the suburbs of Newark, New Jersey, to now being in the financial uh, the financial services business? Um, and, and how did you make that transition? What moved you from that place from there to now? Yeah, um, a couple things. Uh, number one, to backtrack just really quickly, my parents were entrepreneurs. Okay. Um, when I was around... 13, 14, they tried to start a, a tour bus company. So they actually bought like a $300,000 Greyhound sized bus and they were uh, running it down in like Orlando, Florida in partnership with a, a guy who was a really good uh, family friend. And so I remember being 13, helping them design business cards and things like mm -hmm. that. Um, even my grandparents, you know, uh, my dad's parents, they had ran like a dry, dry cleaning spot and all that. So, so that was always kind of there. Um, while I was in school, I was never really thinking entrepreneurship in high school or college. But then when I got out here to L.A., I kind of reverted back to entrepreneurship out of out of necessity because um, it, it just got to a point where the job, you know, you had the recession hit. Jobs just weren't, you know, flowing to people like they used to be. Tell us and, about your college experience. Did you go to college? Did you where did you graduate from all that? Yeah. So I went to college in Virginia at a place called Liberty University to be completely honest, I, I had a horrible experience there. I, I didn't like Liberty. Um, to, to allude to some of the issues I faced there, Liberty was in a place called Lynchburg, Virginia. Mm, that didn't um, sound good and, when you put yeah, Lynch in the name. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and to be quite honest, you know, that was reflected in in some of the culture, not all of it, but some of the culture, you know, people just felt like we had a certain place and that's where we needed to do to to stay. And by going to school in the South, you know, most of the kids there were from the South. I'm from New Jersey. I'm like, please, you better get out of here with all that. So I'm, I'm kind of rebellious. I'm like, you know, I don't get this rule. I It, it was it was a bad experience. Um, mm. You mean like but, when you say rule, you mean they had certain not necessarily laws, but ways you're supposed to behave as a black person? Oh, no. Um, well, Liberty was a Christian college. OK, so they had, you know, the, it was called the Liberty Way. It's like a handbook, no dancing, no hugging for more than this period of time. You know, it was all mm. in the spirit of teaching kids, you know, biblical principles, but it came out just completely uh, just legalistic. And so, you know, I remember getting in trouble and getting reprimands and write ups for, you know, doing the electric slide at school. Wow. Like, it, it was that serious. So it, it was a pretty bad experience. But I got my degree from there. It's not really something I promote because I'm not really a fan of school. <laughs> I got you. School's not your thing. Has it always been like you sound like school wasn't your thing. You had to go a different way. So you came out. There was a recession and you said entrepreneurship was the way. How, how did you move into that piece? Yeah. So I started out, as you mentioned before, you know, with the grant writing and that was kind of uh, why, why grant writing? Yeah. So funny story. I was working at a nonprofit. It was really the first major job I got. I, I ended up out in California. First of all, I hadn't got my degree yet. I had just finished my junior year. I was sick of school. I was like, I, I can't take this anymore. I need to find a way to take a break in a way where my parents aren't going to trip out and be like, oh, my gosh, you're dropping out. Right. So I said, hey, how about I do an internship? I looked, I uh, found, heard about uh, AmeriCorps, which does, you know, one to two year internships. I'm like, hey, that's my out. That's I like Peace Corps, all that stuff. AmeriCorps is a different yeah. thing. Yeah, except it, it's focused on serving the community, you know, often serving at risk communities. So applied for AmeriCorps, got accepted. They said, hey, you can either go to Boston or LA. I was like, Boston, that's too close to home. I like traveling. Let's go to California. Yep. So that's how I ended up out here. And I was working at a nonprofit in Skid Row. Uh, with uh, homeless youth. And um, while I was diving into that world, I was seeing how day-to-day organizations can be, nonprofits can be from a financial standpoint. And I remember at the time, my boss was like, hey, you know, if you want to expand your career in the nonprofit sector, you should look into grant writing. Right. And I was like, ah, never heard of it, whatever. The crazy thing is like the next week, my mom calls me, wants to check in. Hey, Sean, I heard something on the news about this thing called grant writing. You should look at it and look into it. I was like, okay, let me, let me message. Check yeah, exactly. So I ended up looking in, looking into it, went to, uh, what is it? Cal State Dominguez Hills. They had a certificate program in grant writing. It was like a three month intensive, um, signed up for that. And it just, I got it. It, it was interesting. I liked the idea of facilitating funneling capital into where it needed to be into nonprofits and it just clicked. So out of that, once uh, my job started kind of slowing down and they weren't sure if they could extend my contract and all that, I say, Hey, now I have this grant writing skill. Let me go out and try to, you know, get some clients. Can you um, explain a little bit? What is grant writing? What does that mean? Yeah. And who, who, what kind of person should think, what what kind of person should think about this might be something I want to do? Yeah. So grant writing is essentially the nonprofit equivalent of investment banking, which is very interesting. What that means is that there are nonprofits out there. All of us know about them, whether it's a soup kitchen or a church or, you know, a homeless shelter or, you know, what uh, a youth youth development program. 
all these organizations need money to run. Um, but often they're doing work for free. So they're not selling a product. In most cases, they're not selling a product or a service that allows them to sustain their budget. So in order to sustain themselves, they need donations and grants, uh, large or small, to be coming in so that they can run their programs on a regular basis. They get these grants from uh, often private foundations. So when you think about a lot of people who've made a lot of money in this country, like Bill who? and Melinda Gates. Yep. Bill and Melinda Gates have a foundation. Warren Buffett has a foundation. The Ford family has a foundation. You know, the Rockefeller fam- family has a foundation. Right. Um, Probably all these young entrepreneurs like the yeah. now the Mark Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg and all those guys. Yeah. All of them, all of these people, a lot of times when you make money in America, one of the things you do, even if it's just purely for the tax incentives, uh, is you create a foundation. A lot of athletes have foundations. Um, so what I do as a grant writer is I put, t- put together a proposal on behalf of the nonprofit. Say, here's what we do. Here's how we're making the world a better place. Here's what we can accomplish with 10 grand, with 50 grand, with 100 grand. And I pretty much speak the investor's language, speak in business language and try to convince them why they should support our cause or our organization. Yeah. And so, yeah. It seems like you said that organizations were struggling financially. Grant writing was a solution. Um, it sounds like people who work at nonprofits, maybe social workers, people like that, who are yeah. struggling to make their things go. Is this something that could be helpful to them? Yeah, definitely. And it's definitely something that most of them utilize. You know, grant writing by no means is something that's not utilized enough. The problem is, what happens is what's happened to the nonprofit sector is there's become an overdependence on grants. Okay. So why? Is, How, why would why would it be if all those people got so much money? Why would you say mm-hmm. it's overdependence? Well, a couple of interesting things with that. The way it works legally is that these foundations are only legally obligated to distribute five percent of their total budgets each year mm. in the form of grants. So they may be a hundred million dollar foundation, but they're not writing a hundred million dollars in checks every year. Otherwise, they shut down after one year. Right. So each year they disperse five percent, which means that's a limited amount of capital. It can only go to so many places. If they're writing a million dollars a check then they may only support, you know, five organizations if they're writing 50,000 a check, you know, so on and so forth. But the point is, is that at some point they have a cap on how many organizations they can support. When the recession hit, uh, many of them, they got hit in their wallets. Right. So their contributions to their foundations may have lessened or slowed down. The, the, the foundations themselves, their endowments may have shrunk a little bit. So they toned back the giving. And next thing you know, if you had an organization, a nonprofit that was relying on that 50K every year in order to get the get the job done, oh, the 50K got cut down to 25. Or right. this year they said, oh, we can't give you one. Now, immediately, you have to cut staff, you have to cut programs. And so that's what I mean by being over-dependent on grants. You, As a nonprofit, you should have diversified streams of revenue, grants, donations, social enterprise, the works. Okay. And then, so you saw that was going bad. What Mm -hmm. did you move into? What did you see as the next opportunity? How to fix that? Yeah. So that's how I got into social enterprise consulting. And so what is that? Explain what social enterprise is. So social enterprise uh, is in a couple facets, but the facet I worked in is helping a nonprofit establish an underlying business that can help them generate revenue. Okay. Um, I think, you know, yeah, when I was uh, getting my MBA at USC, we had a class called social entrepreneurship and yep. uh, our job sounds like that. It was my project was to go to the I think it was a Salvation Army downtown 
They had mm-hmm. all these washing machines. They were just kind of sitting there unutilized for much of the week. So our idea for them was to start a laundry service for the downtown businesses. So the, and businesses at the time are moving into downtown a lot. They can go get laundry service contracts and make money that way to help fund the 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 the, the, the Salvation Army and mm-hmm. the people who live there could do some work. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Exactly. That's exactly right. And so uh, what I want, what I started doing is in addition to saying, hey, I want to come in and help you write grants and get money. I also want to help you put together a business plan to launch, you know, a smallish business under your nonprofit that can help you not become overly dependent on uh, on grants. Right. How did that go? So, like, what are some of the opportunities you got into? So uh, there was a a mixed response. Um, Unfortunately, and I can say this as somebody who spent the majority of my career in the nonprofit sector. Um, many nonprofits are so into the day-to-day programming that when you raise something that may not be needed now, but may be needed in the near future, yeah. it's hard for them to to get their focus on the next, you know, 12 months, the next 18 months, the next right. 36 months or whatever. And so quite honestly, most nonprofits were like, you know what, we absolutely understand the value of what you're saying, but we just don't have the time. Or we have the time, but we don't want to have to put resources into that. Mm. Our budget's already tight. We don't want to pay a consultant to launch a business that may or may not work. Right. Um, so that was the majority of the response. But there were a handful of organizations that were interested. They wanted to start apparel companies. They wanted to get into real estate type deals and developing their land in partnership with other companies and making, you know, rental income. Um, yeah, there was a, there was a couple interesting ideas. Did any of them? I'll go ahead. Mm-hmm. I was going to say shout out to a, a very well-known one, Homeboy Industries in downtown LA. They're very well-known. They have like a lawn mowing service. They have like chip, tortilla chips they sell. They have, you know, all kinds of services all under their nonprofit. It's like six different businesses. So wow. they're, yeah, they're big time. Did you work with them? I know the, I know uh, the board director or the executive director there, uh, but I haven't worked with them formally in a formal capacity. You have any, um... Any any businesses you put together you think would be interesting stories or ones that you've seen that were uh, besides Homeboy Industries that, that you work with that ended up being a good kind of turnout? You know, I got to be honest, you know, I helped put together some business plans and things like that. Uh, but I I wouldn't say any of the the social enterprise projects I worked on were executed in a way mm. where I could really highlight them just yeah. to be real. Uh-huh. And so I don't want to I don't want to talk bad about any of these organizations, but I want to I want to bring out for people that there's a lot of folks who want to do a lot of good mm-hmm. and people give money. But other folks need to find a way to generate money. Yeah. Um, is it is it a viable way to go about funding a nonprofit to create businesses like this? Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, and maybe I'm sorry, let me ask this too. like, yeah. was there a gap? in the like where was the gap in execution was it they didn't have the right people on staff was it that same focus on the day-to-day not to execute what what do you think it was that kind of stopped it there yeah uh well the fact of the matter it's a a well-known secret in the nonprofit sector that in the nonprofit sector you'll meet some of the most passionate wonderful empathetic people ever who may not necessarily be the most business savvy yeah and so what happens is you you take this idea and you say, "Hey, here's a business plan for a social enterprise. I've written out exactly how you need to execute it. I've written out everything that needs to go. Take this and sim- quite simply they just they can't translate those nonprofit skill sets in not in all cases um 
they can't translate those nonprofit skill sets into now running a business. Yeah. And that's that's a fair thing to say, because, I mean, running a business is no joke. So there needs to be more balance sometimes within nonprofit staff staffs uh, to have people who are business savvy, who understand P&L, who understand marketing and not marketing from a, oh, please donate to our cause, but marketing on some. Here's our product. Here's why it's right. the best. Here's how we came up with the price point, so on and so forth. Do you um do you think that's uh, in the long run? Mm -hmm. uh, my thought is, and, and I don't know, you could tell me either yeah. people like the Gates Foundation, some of these very rich individuals will crowd out some of the, the, the social work that's going on because they'll control the the sources of money or um, or the ones that places that like where, you know, where, where we're interested in the inner cities, people of color communities that need this type of help. They're going to get caught short. The amount of work that's available to be done in those communities mm. is going to be less. And, and in a political environment where they want to cut back on um, social programs, yeah. there'll be people just left hanging dry. Is that a real concern or is it? What do you think? It, it absolutely is. And it's funny you ask that question because, you know, part of my work as a grant writer was to always network with these foundation executives. And they often are clearly frustrated with the nonprofit sector as a whole. And, and a lot of times their sentiment is that they overpromise and underperform. And each year when we see their applications, we're not seeing anything new, anything innovative. Mm -hmm. You're running the same programs you were five years ago. You're serving the same amount of people you were five years ago, so on. But to answer your question more specifically, so what's, that ha what's, what's happened since is that uh, foundations have caught on to for profits like Tom Shoes, in, as an example. Yeah. When they launch their give away a pair of shoes and uh, for every pair you buy, some foundations looked at them as like, wow, there's an organization we're funding that's a nonprofit that their whole mission is providing people with shoes. Mm -hmm. You're a for profit, you're not asking us for money, and you're doing just as much work or better work than the nonprofit we're funding. How can we find a way to partner with you? Right. And so, as you mentioned, it is a threat because if nonprofits don't prove their worth to funders, um, you're seeing more in the news now. Foundations, I think there was just something in the news about uh, the Ford Foundation or somebody allocates a billion dollars toward mission related investments. Right. What that essentially means is they're allocating less, or I, I won't say that, they're allocating more capital toward partnering with and supporting for-profits when in the past it was almost exclusively nonprofit. Mm. If you're for-profit, we're not even going to talk to you, deal with you. We're not interested. But because the nonprofits are underperforming mm. in a lot of cases, they're saying, okay, maybe we need to partner with Facebook who has this causes thing. Mm. Maybe we need to partner with Airbnb who and wants Google to- Google and all those. Well, in order to get the job done because it's just not getting done here. Mm. So, Mm. Yeah. And, and so can you see, have you seen or do you see coming an impact in these in these communities of color that are underprivileged that need these types of nonprofits to help them? Um, it, it's a, it's kind of a dichotomy because what's not going to happen, I don't think, is the core essential nonprofits, the soup kitchens, the, the places that give out clothing to the homeless. They're not going to lose their funding because there's some things that a for profit just simply is not going to do. Yep. You know, they're not going to go out and feed people necessarily. Um, but nonprofits that are trying to that, that are kind of more in the middle ground who don't have a clear, essential social purpose or environmental purpose. They're the ones that are kind of going to be more under the microscope like, 
okay, you know, if we take that money from you and put it over here, you know, is that really going to hurt the community? Especially if this business, you know, commits to starting a branch in that community. Yeah. You know, what's, what's the, the trade off? You know, I, um, the purpose of this podcast is to, to try to help, um, help communities of color, people of color who have traditionally been disadvantaged to try mm. to help them figure out a way to, to, to say, how are we going to come up? You know, and you know, my things are learn or teach stuff how to do better, teach somebody yep. else the same thing, publicize the success stories and ignore the haters. Well, and the mm. part about teaching people how to do better, it seems to me from what I'm hearing from you is we got to help people understand if we want to do large impact work in the communities, we got to start thinking like, like business people. Exactly. We can have the social impact folks on our team, but if the if the business minded folks, if the social enterprise type of people are missing, we may not get the funding or or, or have the impact that we want to have, even if we have a great idea. Yeah, yeah, and and just to keep it a hundred percent real, what what I've seen, and I'm not saying this is a lot, but in cases, a lot of people from the minority community saw nonprofits as a way to come up. You know, they hear mm -hmm. about grants and donations. They say, oh, my goodness, I haven't been able to get a job. Let me start a nonprofit. I can help the community and also get myself a salary. Mm -hmm. And 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 that's completely fine. But then what will happen is, you know, I meet somebody who started an organization and their primary motivation was just, hey, so can you get me a grant so I can get paid 70,000 a year and right. like, be good? And, you know, yeah, we'll we'll give out T-shirts in the, in the hood or something like that. And it's like, well, hold on now, you know. And so it, it, it has to be done with excellence. You yeah, know, I think that's the key. You know, you have to be you have to do everything with excellence. Yes. Yes, indeed. Well, I, so a question then would be now you moved into the private equity investment banking mm -hmm. arena. That seems like a leap from social enterprise. Tell me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, but first of all, what is private equity? What is investment banking yeah. uh, and, and asset management? And how did you make that jump? Got you. So I'll define three three key terms. I'll, I'll do investment banking, private equity, and venture capital. Or you know what? Just private equity because it's all encompassing. But investment banking, as I said before, is the for profit equivalent of grant writing. Investment banking, in, in a lot of cases, is a banker, a financier, uh, connecting businesses that need capital to expand or need capital to launch to investors who are looking for looking to grow their money. And so an investment banker, they come in and they say they go to the investor, they show them the financials. Hey, this is my client uh, company X, Y, X, Y, Z. You know, here's their financials. They're looking at an annual growth rate of this and and such and such. And they try to facilitate those investments. Um, that's one role of, of investment banking. Another one is when businesses start talking about mergers and acquisitions, an investment banker is kind of the broker and facilitates those deals. You know, uh, a lot of huge firms we know about Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, um, you know, uh, I just went blank, but those are two Bear huge, Stearns. You know, yeah, Bear Stearns, exactly, uh, are, are big investment banks that do these multi-billion dollar deals. And when you hear about Yahoo gets bought by Verizon, you know, investment bankers are in the mix of that. Yeah. Um, and the last role of investment bankers is facilitating IPOs. So when Facebook IPO'd, when Twitter IPO'd, an they IPO is whenever they offer initial, stocks to the whole yeah, public. Exactly. They go from being a private, a privately owned company to their shares being by being able to be bought and sold on a stock exchange. Yeah. So so yeah. So that's investment banking. Private equity 
specifically usually uh, is dealing with buying businesses, buying businesses outright. So if I have $100 million and I want to grow it, I look out there for a business that is, you know, has potential to grow, has has all the right things, but maybe it's being mismanaged. Yeah. Maybe it's not using the right marketing strategy. Maybe there's just some pieces missing that I believe I can facilitate. So I go out and I buy that business. I fill in the gaps, fill in the missing pieces, and ideally in a perfect situation, the business, you know, begins overperforming and then I sell it at a premium. I sell it for more than I bought it for and that's right. how I make money. Um, an aspect of private equity that most people are hearing more about these days is venture capital. Venture capital isn't about buying a business outright. It's about buying a small piece of the business. So when Facebook was coming up, venture capitalists said, hey, we'll give you a million dollars for 15 percent or two million dollars. And they 20%. give it to them because Zuckerberg says, I got to buy a bunch of computer processing speed or power. Exactly. I got to hire a bunch of people and I don't have the money myself. So exactly. you uh, venture capital firm can you mm -hmm. give me some money to do all the stuff that i need to grow and in exchange for that money you can own a part of my company exactly yep. yeah okay and so how did you get into that did you have to go get your mba did you you know what'd you do so uh i was enamored by the private equity venture capital world just like a lot of people were and, and a lot of people referenced the the release of the movie social network Mm -hmm. as a as a point in time where a lot of people became aware of not only entrepreneurship but venture capital angel investing all that when i saw social social network i was in the theater like wow this is amazing and i literally uh, this is a bit embarrassing i literally went back to the movie took a notebook into the theater mm. and in the dark whenever something interesting from a business perspective had happened in the movie i was like oh that's interesting and i'm in the dark you know using my phone and i'm writing notes so that was kind of the spark of interest in it for me and social um, network is the facebook movie yeah the facebook movie okay and uh and from that point i was just hooked so i start i'm watching you know the wall street the new wall street movie with shia LaBeouf. i'm watching you know all these business movies that are about investing and investment banking and venture capital there's a, a documentary called something ventured that uh goes through the history of venture capital and how it got to its roots to now um there's a documentary called startup.com that's really mm. good. So I just started self-studying all these things. And the more I learned, the more in love with it I became. Uh, but now, then, There's a difference between learning about it and doing it. A lot of oh, people yeah. are watching a dream. And so how did you move into the doing it yeah. piece? So reality began to set in. Okay. And I started to see, wow, the demographics of that world are quite interesting. I don't see in any of these documentaries or when I go downtown and, you know, walk by the Goldman Sachs building, there's not really a Goldman Sachs building downtown, but whatever. I'm making a point is I didn't see a lot of diversity within these spaces. Okay. Number one. So you're number saying two, it's mostly a white environment. Absolutely. Um, number two, as you mentioned, when you look at the profiles of people who work there, everybody has an MBA from Stanford, Harvard, you know, Ivy League school. Um, and what I couldn't reconcile is. I'm learning about this stuff. Now, am I an expert at it at the time? Definitely not. But I was like, I don't understand why only a certain caliber of person can do this. It It's something that if you're taught it, you have the potential to be good at it. But anyway, so there's there's these, these realistic, these uh, reality checks I'm having where it's like, all right, I'm not going to make it in the mainstream way. Okay. Just straight up. You know, I, I now I didn't just say that right off the bat. Of course, I applied first. You know, I tried to apply for some VC firms and applied to some investment banks, applied to private equity and tried to, you know, 
But on top of that, did you I'm get any bites? Oh, no, not at all. Because I'm coming from the nonprofit sector, too. So that was a strike against me. Absolutely. They're like, why are you even how do you even know who we are? You know, because right. <laughs> most people in the nonprofit sector never even heard of that stuff. They, they, they don't like nonprofit. They want real profit. Exactly. Yeah. And so uh, so part of the way I broke into it and you are a huge part of this, as I said, how can I kind of merge these worlds, merge the world of nonprofit and private equity venture capital? I came up with this interesting model of a nonprofit that uses private equity and venture capital and investment banking type things, but uses it for the good of the community. And so, you know, I called TQ up and I said, hey, I got this idea. It sounds crazy. It might not make a lot of sense, but if you could help me try it out by fiscally sponsoring my organization. And uh, that was the birth of SoTech Ventures, which was uh, active up until, you know, about uh, two weeks ago. So um, let's slow yeah. this down just a little bit. First of all, um, you said you came up with this idea of how to mix um, the, the the private equity world and nonprofits. Yeah. Did you see that from somewhere or was that just like an alchemy, like a thing that just mixed up in your brain and it came out as... And plus, why don't you also integrate? I know you went through the um, the that that competition where you were part of a I forget what those incubator uh, oh, experience yeah, yeah, stuff yeah. like that. So did that have an impact if you could? But so, so the question is, did this exist already out there? Did you come up with it? And how did these like what experiences kind of helped you do that? Yeah. So it didn't exist previously, not to my knowledge. And I still have yet to find an organization, a nonprofit organization trying to do that type of work. Yeah. It, it was a, it was a, a logical decision. I want to get into this space, but my experience and my expertise is in this place. The only way for me to bridge this gap short of some kind of miracle <laughs> is if I can make a connection. And so I literally spent years, you know, over the course of time. How many years? Up, oh, man. Uh, I got to say at least three, three and a half years. And let me, I just want to pause there and say, yeah. and we'll let you keep going that mm-hmm. people, I think have this conception that when they see you, when they hear the the little, another piece of the story in a second, it's like, man, you really came up, but you were just three years applying to jobs and them saying, no, um, you like me for the, that period of time or stay at home, dad, you know, yep. taking care of your, 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 your kid. And, and and your wife was working and providing for you and 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 wondering if you're thinking of doing the right thing for three years, not yeah. just a little bit, and, and trying different ideas and experimenting and learning. And you're one of those examples of folks who taught themselves. I imagine use the power of the internet, right, to yeah. to, to build your education. Yeah. Um, until the idea came up mm-hmm. to fruition for you to experiment on it. So it took a long time of perseverance to get there. And not a lot of people have that long term perspective. So yeah. why don't you talk about, first of all, that period of time? And then I want to also know if you can just just bullet a few of the resources you use to study up a little bit. Absolutely. So, yeah, you're right. I, and I did kind of oversimplify that. I said I called you up and there was SoTech. Well, before SoTech Ventures, there was first. Uh, first, I did my grant writing through an organization called DOV Development Investments. That was my first business. Your own then, personal business where you wrote grants for other companies. Business. Then at one point, once I was unemployed and, and to kind of add how the unemployment came about, I had a job uh, after the, the Skid Row job working essentially as a grant writer for a really large nonprofit here in L.A. Um, but it was so boring. It, it bored me to tears. <laughs> um, it, it, it just bored me to tears. And um, at one point, you know, I, I just got to the point where I talked to my wife and I just, you know, prayed about a lot of stuff and I ended up quitting that job temporarily going to the East Coast. And uh, it so turned out 
with the, the stream of events, my father passed away a few months later. Mm. So by going to the East Coast after quitting that job, my wife and I were actually able to hang out with my father during his last months here, wow. you know, and that's something that wouldn't happen. But after that point, uh, I came back. I'm trying to get back in the workforce. I, I started applying to a company called Account Temps that pretty much provides you with temporary jobs in the field of accounting and finance. And I had done some accounting coursework in college. And so I was I felt confident in that area. So here's a, a key bullet point. Account Temps placed me at the time at a company. I won't say the name because they're kind of controversial now, um, but a, at a company who had offices in the U.S. bank building in downtown. And they were a startup, an investment based startup. And they needed some forensic accounting done. And so account temps put together like a five person team. And I was one of those team members. And we went in and we looked at their books and we found, you know, uh, where money was going, where it probably didn't need to go and and so on. But anyways, that was a bullet point. So I worked for a startup temporarily. It was only like a three week assignment, but it blew my mind. They had this awesome platform. And so that was key. After that, I started my first technology business. It was called Excel. Yeah completely bombed. It was, it just no traction whatsoever, <laughs> okay. but, but it was the seed of what is now an idea being implemented through the private or through the investment bank I'm working with. So what was started, the technology? Uh, Excel was meant to allow people to buy and sell percentages of revenue from one another. Okay. Meaning, uh, if I have a, if you have a barbershop, and I want to buy uh, 5% of your monthly revenues, I can facilitate that. Now, let me go ahead and add a disclaimer. That's, I, I didn't even notice at the time. That was Ill- that's illegal. You know, there's a whole okay. kind of securities and exchange commission issues, but it was just an idea I had. I wanted to try to make you it work. You went for it. You went I for went, it. That's entrepreneur went, mindset. But it bombed. It, it bombed. Then completely. what? Then I started a company called Capital Lancer. So I was like, okay, you can't just buy revenues. That's illegal. Got it. SEC straight. So Capital Answer was trying to be more of a crowdfunding platform and and coming up with an innovative way for instead of crowdfunding a business directly, you crowdfund the service provider that they need. So instead of us coming together and putting together $5,000 in exchange for equity in business, we say, here, we'll pay the contractor you need to Mm -hmm. develop your website. Yeah. And that contractor's happy because they get cash money instead of equity. You're happy because you get the services and we're happy because we get the equity that you would have offered the contractor. Got it. That was the whole play on trying to It's provide. almost like a venture capital firm. It it was. But I was a crowdfunded venture. I was trying to make a way so that everyday people could get equity in startups. And this was before the Jobs Act. And I feel well, like they're I feel like they're that you can do that now. Like that's a you can't. You can. Yeah, but you, so you just thought of that idea before it even came. I thought of the idea before the Jobs Act was passed. It may have already been because it was in the, the mix for years, but I didn't know about it. Right around the time I launched the idea, I'm like, oh, this is so awesome. The Jobs Act passed. And they say, oh, it's now legal to do this. You don't need to find loopholes to do it. I said, great. Well, my business is now irrelevant. Right. <laughs> Moved on to the next one. Next one was called CrowdServe. Um, CrowdServe, just pivoting and adjusting. Honestly, I can't even tell you exactly what CrowdServe was. But it's cool. Being, yeah. But uh, point is, there was about four different businesses that I launched. And, and um, how were you learning about how to make these things happen? Because you're not doing an MBA in the meantime. Yeah. Did you have mentors that you worked with? Um, did you go through yeah. any special programs? Like, What tools did you use to get to this point? 
Yeah, so that's a great question. So resources wise, fact of the matter is, even if I wanted to get an MBA, my college grades were so bad, you know, I probably couldn't get into a decent MBA program. So I'm using sites like Just Answer and Rocket Lawyer, and I'm hitting up these lawyers and I'm paying, you know, $35 per answer and I'm picking their brain on everything under the sun. So I'm I'm getting to speak to lawyers. Tell me how securities works. Tell me, can I do this deal? Can I do that deal? Why can't I do, you know, so mm. that they, they made anybody on Rocket Lawyer or any of those attorneys who were moonlighting on that. Boy, we we did some work together. So but, you use them for your legal counsel. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. What are, what are the tools that you use? Yeah. So Rocket Lawyer, there's a site called Fiverr where yeah. people do all kind of services for five bucks or thirty bucks. You know and what kind of what kind of services were you buying? Oh man, I got uh, pitch decks developed. I got logos designed for my businesses. I got um, social media marketing services to get, you know, a certain amount of followers or get stuff pushed on their blogs, things like that. So So you were saying that what I'm trying to get at here is Mm -hmm. you weren't some big company. You didn't have um, parents who were funding your operation. You didn't have a a mortgage you were taking out of your house, which is like one of the number one ways people finance their business, take out another mortgage in their house. You just used the the sharing economy a little bit with things like Mm -hmm. Fiverr. Um, and rocket lawyer, you know, mm-hmm. like to buy a piece of somebody's time to, yeah. to use that. And, and you just kind of learned along the way, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. And I used a credit card, unfortunately, Yeah, you know, now mind you, a lot of these services were a hundred times cheaper than they would have been if I went out and tried to get a lawyer. But you know, my, my, my wife, you know, supported me through all this stuff. Yeah. And when I was, Hey, can I pay a hundred bucks here, 200 bucks there to get this done, get that done. And so over the years, you know, I, I racked up thousands of dollars in debt launching these things. Um, so, yeah, that's just keeping it real. Yeah. And then so now you learned all these things. They culminated mm-hmm. in the incubator that you're a part of. You want to talk about that? Yeah. So that was I'm not a part of it anymore. So what happened is after Capital Lancer, I started I reached out to some advisors on LinkedIn. I got on LinkedIn. I started looking up people who are involved in the startup space, venture capital, private equity. And I just sent everybody messages. Hey, I'm a young up and coming entrepreneur. I need help. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm winging it. And here's the progress I've been able to accomplish winging it. But I don't know what I'm doing. How did they respond? Well, most of them just wouldn't even add me or wouldn't even respond. But out of nowhere, I got a response and, and I'll shout him now. His uh, name is Adam Rhodes. Um, and he was like, hey, you know, I like your your spirit. I like that you've been, you know, let's chat. And I've known Adam now for, I want to say maybe two and a half years. And he and I are still friends and he still gives me advice. And, and as I was coming up with the new ideas and launching the new companies, he was an advisor, you know, and would tell me, you know what, Sean, this this pitch deck, this this presentation for investors, is, it's a no go. You need to you need to do this, format it this way. You know, you need to before you send me stuff, make sure it's spell check properly. I don't want to see miss. I mean, he was that guy. Right. You know, so. Uh, so, yeah. Um, and you weren't, and you weren't afraid to say you didn't know. No, you know, you just have to be real. You know, a lot of people in entrepreneurship now have this fake it till you make it. And to a degree, you know, that's applicable. But at some point, it just becomes pride where you just don't want anyone to know that you have an area that you don't understand fully. and. You know, I guess some people appreciate honesty, yeah. you know, and uh, appreciate it. But um, to answer your question about the incubator, around that time I had Adam as an advisor, uh, I 
apply to an incubator. Um, and I won't say the name uh, because I ended up dropping out. But that's when I really got exposed to the startup culture because this was a very, uh, very well-known respected incubator. It's international and they had an L.A. cohort and I got accepted uh, based on my idea. And I went to like their opening mixer and opening event. And it was an interesting experience, man. It was an interesting experience. Interesting culture. Yeah. Uh, the startup culture. What do you mean? Like what was interesting about it? Oh, man. So, you know, as I said, there's that kind of fake it till you make it. I- I'll give you an example. So I'm there. Of course, I'm I was the only only person. I was the only African-American male there for sure. There was only one other person of color, an uh, uh, African-American young young lady. Um, and outside of that, it was pretty much exclusively uh, white and Asian. Um, and it's this big, big mixer they had at this nice kind of like club spot not not a club but it's a nice spot in santa monica so it's very nice candles and blah, and everybody's networking and you know so i'm like all right sean you know get over that that fear and feeling like everybody's looking at you so i go up to a table of people and i kind of you know stand with them as they're chatting and you know i'm looking for that opportunity to say hey you know how you doing my name is such and such and i stand at the table and i wait for them to kind of like look at me and acknowledge me so i can introduce myself and they literally never took their eyes off of each other. Mm. And it kept speaking. I'm literally standing like right next to him. So I was like, okay, this is a little awkward. Let me break the ice. And I just kind of interrupted. Hey, how you doing? You mind if I stay in here? You know, I didn't want, don't want to offend. They said, oh yeah, sure. We don't mind at all. About two minutes later, they both just randomly decided to go get drinks. So I'm at the table by myself now. Yeah. Okay. Another experience. Uh, I, I stumble into this kind of drunk Australian guy. Mm. Who's a who's a founder? Who's a, a, a alumni of the of the the um, incubator of the incubator? And I go up to him, say, "Hey, how you doing? My name's Sean." He's like, "What's your idea?" And I'm like, "Well, uh, it's this thing called such and such." He's like, "Pitch me right now. You got two minutes." I'm like, "That's really rude, man." You know, so <laughs> <laughs> like, and so the point is, is that there's there's this bubble that the startup world where people do stuff that at least in our culture, if you did it to somebody on the street, you know, yeah. you could have a fair chance of getting slapped. Right. But there, they're just so used to just kind of this arrogant, whatever, how much money have you raised? How much money have I raised? Yeah. Oh, I got backed by, you know, what? So I just wasn't really fond of it. And then I met some of the professors or teachers and, and everything was just, you know, effing if you don't know how to market you're an effing loser and and it was like wow so the culture was it sounds like it was um it was a rough and tumble not very inviting encouraging culture i won't even say rough and tumble because rough and tumble implies that the people themselves are actually rough when most of them are kind of sensitive but it's it's just it's it's uh what's the word i'm looking for not inappropriate, but it's just vulgar. Yeah. It's vulgar and it's based on what you've been able to accomplish most recently. And if you haven't, F you, you're nobody. You know? and, and a lot of folks, yeah. a lot of people of color may not have come from a place where exactly. you even know what venture capital is, much less yeah. have done something in that world or yeah. raised money in that world. So how are you going to exactly. be able to fit in? It seems like so the doors could almost be closed not on the basis of your ability, but just on your experience in the culture. Yeah. And socially. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And let me ask you this, like, how did you, so this is that ignore the haters. How did you overcome that piece? Like, why not just say, you know what, man, maybe this world is not for me. Mm -hmm. I I need to go to the next level of that finance temps job or something else like that to go back in that arena. Why not do that? Why keep going in that direction of being an entrepreneur in this space? Yeah. So it was a, it was a dilemma. If I went back the account temps route, that was a kind of once in a lifetime placement I got. There's not a lot of startups you're going to get placed at. Most of the time you're going to get placed at established organizations, which. But there, it's there safe. Was no, you would get paid. You could raise your family on that money. Very true. But I wanted to be an innovator. I had this idea in my head that I felt like could really, truly help people, specifically help people from the minority community. And I didn't want to just throw that idea away for the safe job, even though it seemed like it would have been the responsible thing to do and all that. Like I said before, thankfully, I had a wife who was like, you know what? You talk about this idea all the time. You're always talking about it. And it sounds cool, but I don't even get it half the time. Go for it. And by having that support, I was just like, you know what? I'm going to go for it. But I'm not going to compromise myself either by going for it through this accelerator program where everybody tries to treat you like, you know, an idiot. So I was like, you know, I'm going to have to figure out some other way. So, uh, yeah. So you like your mission was enough, like you kept your focus on your why and your mission. And that said that serving that is more important than serving the fears I have or whatever inadequacies you felt or whatever, however put off you were by the culture to kind of get through that piece. Exactly. Now and, you, and to, oh, go yeah. ahead. I was going to say, and to throw a quick story out here about that mission. I'll give you an example of, of one of the inspiring moments. I remember, you know, my mom calls me all the time. She's still on the East Coast. She's actually moving out here soon, though. Um, but. She would just call, check in. And I remember one time kind of half jokingly, she was just telling me about work and life. And she was just like, Sean, I'm going to have to work till I die. And I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, you know, my retirement account, it's just, it's not what I thought it was going to be. And, you know, at the time I'm reading all these books, you know, half these books I have behind me, King of Capital, Merchants of Debt, Warren Buffett's biography, you know, all these. And I'm like, mom, you know, why don't you try these investments? Why don't you look into this? Why don't you look into that? And as I was telling these things, I realized, like, wow, you have to be an accredited investor in order to access investments that would get her where she needed to be. What's an accredited, what's an accredited investor? So an accredited investor, and and I believe it's around these figures, it may have changed recently, but it's uh, having, I want to say annual income of at least $250,000 a year or an overall net worth of at least a million dollars. So to even, to even get into some of these type of investments you were suggesting to her would help her retirement. She'd have to be making money way more than she probably was making and have more money in the bank than she was probably had in the bank. Absolutely. The only thing that us regular average Janes and average Joes can do is the stock market, essentially stocks and bonds and run Um, your own business and run your own business and essentially be your own investment. Right. Um, Yeah. So what what was the what was the you were saying that's a kind of a story that was motive that was inspirational to you? Yeah. So one of the main people I wanted to be able to use my product once I eventually launched it was my mother. Yeah. I wanted to create something that she could use so that that statement she made, I'm gonna have to work till I die, wouldn't be true anymore. Right. So having that in my head, when I'm facing the jerks at the accelerator, or I'm facing the prospect of a regular job, I'm like, no, I have to make this thing for my mom, for my aunties, for my uncles, for my grandparents, for me. You know, it has to exist. It needs to. Now, you went through all those different experiences, learned, bought time from lawyers for $35 a hit. To, mm-hmm. to get to the spot where um, you came to me with this idea for SoTech Ventures. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and we did a fiscal sponsorship, which is basically the, the organization I ran, P4CM, was a nonprofit. Your idea was based upon being a nonprofit. So to get that status, P4CM sponsored you. You could use our nonprofit status to kind of start testing your idea out. And for us, it was, why don't you tell us about what Sotech Ventures is and and kind of the, the idea behind what you had in mind and, and how that got you closer to your ultimate idea? Yeah. So uh, what Sotech Venture was, really, because yeah. I have to use past tense, um, was a nonprofit that, you, that tapped into the grant money that I had spent all my time as a grant writer tapping into and what, uh, just throwing out a stat, I, as a grant writer, I raised roughly around a million dollars okay. in small denominations at a time okay. uh, for clients and employers or whatever. So I'm like, Hey, if I've raised a mill for all these other people, why can't I raise a mill and find a way to utilize that into businesses that still have the social and or environmental impact, but also find a way to funnel the equity of those businesses into individuals who don't typically have access. Right. So that's what SoTech Ventures was designed to do. Um, and during my time working on it, I, I made five investments in companies, you know, all so, over the place. So wait, let's slow down. You said you made investments. Yeah. What was the concept behind SoTech Ventures? What were you trying to do with it? So the concept behind it was- Like you'll are, take grant writing money yeah. and use that so, to invest in companies? Yes. In a sense. So so let me kind of break it down a little bit. And I have to be slightly limited because now this information is proprietary, proprietary. Yeah. So so I, I don't want you to I don't want you to I don't want to give away all the trade secrets. So yeah, yeah, yeah. do as little as you need to. But the idea yeah. is you wanted to to, to to merge those two worlds. Yeah. The idea is what I can say is this. I created a model that allowed assets to be duly owned by both a for profit and a nonprofit. Okay. And by being duly owned. It could tap the private capital markets of a for-profit world as well as the philanthropic capital markets of the nonprofit world. Got it. And that's in a nutshell what it was designed to do. And then you you tested it out. How did that tested go? It. The tests, um, because the grant and, and writing let me process- say, I don't want to say test it out either. Sorry, because it makes it sound like you were just experimenting and not doing it. You ran it as a business. Yeah. I ran so, it as an organization with the primary goal of serving the community, serving at risk and, and underserved populations, but still by utilizing this innovative model that had never been seen before. Yeah. And then, yeah. so tell me some examples, if you can, um, what are some examples? You said you invested in five companies. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what any of those companies did or, or how it went? Yeah, absolutely. So one company, I, I think my, maybe I shouldn't, no, it's my favorite. My favorite one is uh, I met a guy uh, connected with a guy over the internet who's based in Uganda, I believe. Hey, um, to the motherland. Yeah, and he's a chemist. He's a chemist. And he created this proprietary process that, uh, what's the word, that recycles automotive oil. Mm. And he puts it through a process, you know, chemicals, all this. It And it takes the sludge out of used automotive oil um, and essentially... Once he takes, you know, a vat of old used oil, puts it through his process, 80% of it is now reusable again. Wow. And the remaining 20% can be reutilized into creating products like soap or things like that. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a brilliant, crazy thing. And when you think about oil, being able to recycle and reuse yeah. oil, yeah. like that's, that's something that can change the world. Yeah. But he's in Uganda. He's been ignored and or. Uh, oppressed 
by some companies who see what he's doing as a threat to the industry. Yeah. And I can tell you from experience, the government of Uganda is known to shut things down that they don't like. Yeah. I mean, he told me some stories. And so I was like, man, I got to help you. And, And part of the reason we worked together is I was like, if I can, you know, doing the asset sharing piece, if I can bring that process under a U.S. based organization, we can protect it under U.S. law as a trade secret right. where you might not have that that luxury, you know, where you're based. So, you know, we talked and found out what's the best way to protect his idea and to keep it from being stolen or, or not being seen as legitimate. And, uh, you know, we put a deal down on paper and, and to this day, I'm still, you know, working with him and helping him to uh, try to raise some capital. How did you that- find him? Man, LinkedIn is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Uh, LinkedIn, Angels List. Um, you know, gust.com. All so these you, did you put a, a word out on those platforms? Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I just want to see what, you know, I'll go through ABC order, you know, 50,000 start. And I'm just looking for words that catch my interest. Got it. You know, on like a site, like a angel list, you know, they have their like little logo, their name and like a little tagline, like we are the Airbnb of the forest or something like that. Right. And I just look and when I see something that's like, Oh, that's that's interesting. Click on them, check them out, do my due diligence, yeah. reach out, try to do a deal. And that's how you found this guy. That's how I found him. So what's the social impact benefit as you see it? So with his idea in particular, you know, obviously there's an environmental impact of because the the disposal of oil is still something that the industry still hasn't fully figured out. You know, right. we talk pollution and sludge and, you know, uh uh, trying to burn it off and, and dispose of it in all these in landfills and things like that or in the water, obviously it's absolutely destroying the environment. Sure. But if 80%, and this is just you know completely hypothetical, but if 80% of the oil used in just this year was able to be reused again next year, that's 80% oil that's not being going towards some poorly efficient uh, disposal process and polluting the earth. Right. So, you know, yeah. That, Just out of curiosity, how's it going with him? Um, he's he's still grinding. Unfortunately, the one weakness of the model I came up with is philanthropic money moves slow. Yeah. So if I started grant writing from him in January, it'll probably won't be till September or October until I start hearing back on some of these grants. Right. So um so I've definitely applied, you know, across the gamut to try to find some funding for him, but but it still remains to be seen. But um, but even with that said, the model is sound. So you know? it's so sound that you had a, an interesting opportunity to come along lately. You want to talk about that? Absolutely. So so the reason I used past tense uh, when referring to SoTech Ventures is I would say probably about a week and a half, two weeks ago, um, I started, you know, I promote I, I promote a lot of my work through SoTech Ventures and, and stuff like that. And um, I had met George Swain, actually a couple of years ago at an event called the Pan-African Trade and Investment Summit or Conference. And uh, he was an investment banker. He ran kind of his own boutique investment bank, which just means a small, you know, could be a one man show, could be three people, five people, whatever. And he's been doing investment banking for quite some time, has great connections, you know, awesome knowledge. And I, I pushed some of the stuff I was doing to him as well as a bunch of other people. And he reached out and he was like, we need to talk. And, you know, we just had a series of phone conversations where I broke down the model in detail, what I was doing, what we were trying to accomplish 
and all that. And uh, his response to me was like, Sean, you know, this is interesting timing because I do investment banking, but I've been really feeling the need to raise my own investment fund so that I can do in direct investments. Because his experience and what's direct? Um, what do you mean? What do you mean by direct investments? Yeah, pretty versus. much raising his own. Yeah. So an investment banker, as I said in in the past, uh, facilitates investments. They match the investor to the investment. Right. Direct investments means you are the you you have custody of the money. So you're the one. You're the investor. Yeah. So he he was pretty much saying he wanted to transition from being the middleman to actually being the investor. Yeah. Because based on his experience. He was seeing that the multicultural market uh, was underserved, you know, whether people say that all the time. But yeah, why? why just as a quick if we can set it aside, people say it's underserved. But if there's mm -hmm. money there, why? Why aren't the greedy capitalists chasing it? Just if not only for the money, you understand what oh, I'm saying? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, there's there's a lot of theories out there, but I'll I'll name a few. There's one term that people use they call it pattern matching which means essentially when you sit in the in the room with an investor it's a gamble it, it, a lot of forms of investment of investing especially these days because there's so much money out there people will say they have all this criteria and things like that but at the end of the day it's a guess so how do you determine whether or not you're going to invest in somebody or not well you invest in people you like and you invest in people that you can relate to. So if I am a white male Stanford graduate from Connecticut and I meet Sean, the dude from Jersey who took six to seven years to get his bachelor's degree, worked <laughs> in the nonprofit sector, you know, cares about homelessness and helping his mama have good investments, there may or may not, but most likely may not be common ground there. So even though I might look at Sean and say, oh, that's cool. That's interesting. Yada, yada, yada. At the end of the day, if I got to write a check, I'm not really comfortable giving it to you because I don't really get you. I just don't get you. Right. So that's one theory that's out there. Pattern matching. Uh, of course, you have just outright discrimination, outright racism in some cases where, you know, some people just don't want to see us win. They believe we have a place and they're like, why are you even in this space? Yeah. You don't belong here. You know, have you, so have you felt that um, or seen it? You know, here's the, the interesting thing with a lot of experiences. Sometimes stuff is so covert that it makes it extremely difficult. And this is, you know, I, I have I'll use uh, Adam in this example. Adam, my my friend, advisor and mentor, Adam, he is a Caucasian male. And there's some conversations we have where he just doesn't get what I'm saying. He doesn't get the perspective I'm coming from. And it's not because he's racist or anything like that. But a lot of times when I try to explain like more covert forms of racism, if it's not overt, if it's not being lynched or shot and being called the N-word, some people don't calculate that as racism. What's a covert form of racism in, the, so, in your world? Yeah. In my world, it could be going up to an entrepreneur and saying, hey, yeah, I'd, I'd like to learn more about your company. You know, I have some capital that I'm looking to invest. And they say, you got some capital? Yeah. How much you got? How much you got? Now, that would be completely inappropriate in any other context. But with me, whether it's because I'm young, whether it's because I'm black, whether it's because I'm young and black, you know, whatever. When they see me, they don't think investor. Right. 
You know, they barely right. even think entrepreneur. Yeah. So like, you guys have, I, I've gotten emails. I've gotten people look at the website. I'll give you another example. So when I was doing SoTech Ventures, I had an application process for some people who would passively find out about my uh, organization. Yeah. The application process was tailored toward, as we mentioned before, a lot of people in the minority community, we haven't had access to the same resources and to, to the same experiences. So sometimes I got to spell stuff out. I have yeah. to say, are you interested in venture capital? In parentheses, venture capital is this. Are you interested in a buyout of your company in the future? A buyout is this. So I had this guy, he went on the, the, the website, um, looked at the application and sent me this long email like, if you are explaining what these terms mean, how do you expect anyone to take you seriously? How can you even... <laughs> and, I, and I sent him back an email. I was like, I could explain to you why... I worded things the way I worded and why that matches my target audience. But you're so rude. I don't even want to talk to you. So yeah. just leave me alone. You yeah. Know? But yeah. yeah, that's the example, you know? Yeah, that's crazy, man. Um, and I think what you're saying is there are companies out there who could use your, there are companies out there who are using services like yours mm -hmm. to be bought, to be improved, to have investments put into them because they know it's available. They understand what you're talking about. So they go for it. But yeah. it sounds like there are lots of companies in the black and brown community that could use what you're offering, but have no clue what it is, have no clue that it exists. And as a result, there are tons of opportunities missed. That's, is that, is yeah. that where the, the, the underserved piece comes from? That's exactly where it comes from. And that's why what I'm doing now at GSI, at George Wayne Investments, uh, that SoTech merged into is so key because we look at the minority community or the multicultural community as an emerging market. Yeah. So most people, they think emerging market, they think China, India, and all that. But the, the United States has an interesting situation where within a developed market, the, U, the U.S., a huge economy, you have an emerging market within it because of some of the unfairness or neglect or being underserved. So the minority community is an emerging market within a developing market. Mm. So like you said, there's a lot of reasons why, even for money, there's some investors out there that just won't touch it. Yeah. So you know what? We're going to raise capital. We're going to deploy capital into this emerging market, and we're going to serve that market, and we're going to make good returns as a result. And that's that's I, what we're doing. So I think it's, uh, I'm looking now, Madam C.J. Walker, she mm -hmm. uh, made, I couldn't remember the name, I have to look it up real quick, but she made black hair care products. Mm -hmm. And the way she made tons of money doing it was because- nobody was making hair care products for black people. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what you're talking about. There's mm -hmm. this whole, is it, okay, so I, I'm going to I'm gonna move on to what are you guys doing with that opportunity? Because let's yeah. just assume that it's real. So mm -hmm. what are you guys doing with that opportunity? Not even, not, not, not let us assume, let's agree mm -hmm. that it's real, that there's yeah. an emerging market there. You have any idea of the size and what are you guys doing with it? Oh man, it, it... To, to answer your question on the size, because it's an emerging market and because of a lot of the neglect and things like that, there aren't really completely trustworthy numbers on it, yeah. in my opinion. Um, but what we're doing, and to also touch on your Madam C.J. Walker point, we see that as kind of 50% of the picture. I would call that a nuanced opportunity, meaning there are certain products that have a outsized demand within our community that 
isn't reflected. So if somebody pulls up hair care products industry and they get the number and they look at it as an investor and they say, oh, hair care, you know, it's only uh, accounts for this much money per year. Not really an industry I would invest in. But if you broke that down into African-American community, brown community, white community, Asian, how much each one of those sectors or uh, demographics spend on hair care, there's a possibility you may see that the African-American community has an outsized demand just because of a cultural thing or whatever. That now would be an attractive investment. But because they never break it down into that demographic, that's something that only we'll see. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like I said, that's a, a nuanced opportunity. But then there's a mainstream opportunity that comes from the discrimination or neglect piece, meaning how do we know? Let me ask you this question hypothetically or rhetorically. How do we know that there was not somebody from the minority community who had a Facebook idea or something better yeah. than that does not exist today and nobody knows about it simply because they didn't have access to the resources or the mentorship or just didn't have the network to ever get it there. Yeah. How do we know that that's not there? That's the, the other half of what we're doing. We want to find, and I, I don't even like using the term the black Mark Zuckerberg. No, it'd just be the person who, you know, I'm not even going to compare Who's not comparable? They're their the own. The black investor, the black inventor, exactly. the black entrepreneur. Exactly, exactly. The person who has that next huge idea, who's being ignored because maybe they went to community college to stay close to home, to take care of their mama, who's you know whatever, or to take care of, help take care of their little brothers and sisters, yada yada yada. They're from the whatever their story is, or even if they're from suburb, whatever. We don't care. We want to find them. Yeah, and we're. You know, we're going to support them. How are you doing that? So what are you guys doing to make that happen? What's the Mm -hmm. you guys are raising some money. You guys are doing some different things. What's going on there? Yeah. So two things that we're going to do that's different are number one, we're going to utilize some mobile app technology as an engagement tool. Mm. Um, And we're working on developing this app right now that's going to be called Blind Spot because that kind of represents the concept we're working on. We're operating in the blind spot of the mainstream industry. They're all looking for the Stanford, Harvard, MBA, whatever. And we're looking where they just don't think there's any value. And Mm. that's where we're going to blossom. But this, this app is going to be unique in that on top of just being an engagement app, it's also going to have educational components. You know, as I mentioned, having the rocket lawyer piece, having the Fiverr piece, I'm putting links to those resources in the app so that when uh, a user from the minority community who may not have even known about these resources previously, mm. we're letting them know, hey, here's here's how you come up. Here's how you get to revenue generating. Here's how you grow to this this size or that size. Um, there's going to be a- another thing we're going to do is we're going to put together a conference um, right now. And I don't think it's too early to say this. We're exploring uh, doing something in partnership with the city of Inglewood uh, at the forum in Inglewood, California, in Inglewood, California. Um, and essentially creating and building up our own customized version of the Silicon Valley ecosystem. Yeah. Except specifically geared toward the multicultural uh, community. Is it so, going to be L.A. based or can people across the country participate? Oh, it's going to be international. Yeah. So that's our vision. That's our goal. So you you're know, starting we, it here and you'll grow it how you can. Absolutely. Absolutely. And whether we grow it through live streaming and things like that, and we've had some conversations about that. But yeah, so it's not just about raising money. It's about doing it differently, because that's another thing. Wait a minute. Before you go on from that, if you can say how much money you guys is the initial raise that you guys are looking to do. 
Yeah, so our target raise is $100 million. Thus far, we've already raised $10 million. And so, so like, that's big numbers to me, you yeah. know, which is awesome. Uh, that's a lot of money that's going to be out there to invest using yeah. your Soltech Adventure idea, plus some others, I'm sure, that George has to, to build a business mm -hmm. um, in traditional forms of private equity. Um, now, but when we talk about $100 million mm -hmm. in Silicon Valley, that's a Silicon Valley investor wouldn't bend over to pick up a hundred million dollars because they, <laughs> in that time, they may have made that much money, right? So, yeah, yeah. What wh what's the what's the what's the the international big vision? What kind of size of a firm do you guys want to be doing? So, so when you start to make a really significant impact, do you think? Yeah, the hundred million is just a starter for us. You know, as I mentioned, you know, the the benefit of now partnering with GSI and with George is he is extremely connected, extremely well well-respected in the space. So yeah, could we make the number higher than a hundred million based off of his connections and his, the respect and the, the strategies that we're presenting alone? Absolutely. Cause he's but also been to, doing it for a long time. Yeah. He's been doing, he's been doing the investment banking piece for a long time and all that, but we know that you need to take steps. So when I say a hundred million, I don't mean, Oh, this is what we're doing. And that's it. A hundred million is the first fund. And oftentimes private equity firms or private equity companies have multiple funds. Right. So a hundred million dollar fund may just be one of five. Right. So, you know, we're, we're definitely not, uh, you know, counting ourselves short. You know, if we end up raising 500 million or more, I mean, I just saw something in the news today. I think it was, uh, Apollo Capital Management raised the biggest private equity fund in history, $26 billion Jeez. in one fund. Jeez. So like I said, so when I'm saying, oh, we can raise 500 million, something like that, there's some people who may listen to that and say, oh, that's ridiculous. No, there is a fund that just closed this week with $26 billion in capital. That's crazy. So we're not, we're not, we're not talking about a lot, but we're going to move and hey, who knows, 10, 20, 30 years, maybe we can do the same thing. Don't forget you knew me way back when, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And you can... If, if it's a nice party in Santa Monica or Inglewood or wherever, I want to come to, and I'll talk to you, man. Absolutely. I want to. Um, you, you're doing an awesome thing here, and and I know we can go into it forever. I I just want to hit some key questions so people can kind of take some learnings away. If yeah. you were to say three books that you were to give as a gift to somebody because mm. they want to get either involved as an entrepreneurial mindset or they um they want to get into this investment banking, venture capital, private equity arena, what would they be? Mm, I'm about to do a plug right here. One is called Smart Money. Okay. It's called Smart Money by Andrew Palmer. It just kind of gives the history of finance. So you can just really understand how money works, where it came from, from, from people using tick marks in a twig or in a stick to keep track of debts and credits, debits and credits to now, you know, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and all that, you know, understanding money, just really getting it. That would be one. Uh, another one's called Banker to the Poor yep. by uh, Muhammad Yunus, who did, um, oh my gosh, my, my, Grameen, Grameen Bank. Okay. Um, and that's a micro banking. Yeah. Micro, micro lending institution that's, you know, very well known, well respected. Another one is called King of Capital. This is specifically, this is by uh, David Carey and John Morris, and it's about um, uh, a private equity firm called Blackstone, which mm. is one of one of the largest private equity firms. And it just talks through how he, how the founder started from the beginning to growing it to a multi-billion dollar 
uh, private equity fund. And, and yeah, so those would be my three. Are there any good social media people or blogs you'd recommend people connect to that you could think of? Mm-hmm. You know, I got to say, so many of the blogs these days are so mainstream, meaning they, and this is just my opinion, they seem to kind of just hop on the bandwagon. Yeah. Whatever's coming out of Silicon Valley, they just push that. Yeah. Um, and so, no, I, I don't really, I don't really like a lot of the blogs. <laughs> got it. Got it. Well, what about mentors? You mentioned Adam. Now, George, mm. I'm sure will be a mentor. Have yeah. any other people had an impact? Because we can't, one of the things we feel like sometimes I think in our community is we're on our own, you know, like I'm the mm. smartest one. I'm the only one with ambition. You know, people are yeah. depending on me. They don't always look to who can I depend on to learn and grow from. So mm. any mentors that you have had or you would mention? Yeah, uh, I'm a shout out to people. Um, one guy's name, Robert Lewis. Uh, he used to run a program called Bloom at California Community Foundation. Now he runs his own organization called Next Impact. Great guy. Uh, just put me on to a lot. Helped me develop as a grant writer. Another guy who's pretty well known, his name is Sean Dove. He runs the uh, campaign for black men or uh, black male achievement campaign for black male achievement. I want to say it's out of Chicago or New York. OK. Um, you know, he he does does work with Obama and his foundation and things like that. So he's well respected. But um, I've spoken to. Uh, him on several occasions because he's from Jersey, um, used to go to the same church as me and stuff. Uh, but yeah, those are two people I'll, I'll definitely uh, give and a shout what out. kind of impact have they had for you? Like, what's the value of having a mentor mentors like these that you mentioned and others? Yeah, sometimes it's just having somebody who will keep you held to that standard standard of excellence. Yeah. No, there were there were a lot of times where I just was so tired of pushing whatever I was pushing at the time, whatever company it was, that the standard would drop a bit. And, you know, I'd say, oh, yeah, here's what I'm working on. Here's a little presentation. And it, it just wouldn't be sharp. And they would hit me back and be like, oh, you know, this is kind of weak. Uh, you know, I, I when we were on the phone, I got what you were saying. But this presentation, I'm just not I'm not feeling that same energy from this presentation, you right. know. And so having people to hold you to that standard, having people who will are willing to share their network with you. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and just having people who understand the same challenges you're going through as somebody from the minority community or as a woman or as whatever demographic you're coming from. Um, so yeah. Okay. Awesome. And, and I, I, I don't want people to think you're all work and no play. Do you, what kind of things do you do for fun, man? Like, do you, you, you have any, any guilty pleasures, any, you know, any, any things you do for fun besides read investment books and <laughs> do math equations for how much money you can make next month. Yeah, absolutely, man. I, I'm I'm very big on family first. Um, my daughter, she's going to be two in September and hanging out with my wife. We're travelers. Like my daughter, you know, she's been, she's traveled to a lot of places within, I would say, a 300 mile radius of Los Angeles. Uh, and she's barely even two years old now. My wife and I, we've traveled the country. We've driven cross country four times. So we've right. seen almost every state. So, so yeah, what, what we do for fun is we travel. We'll go to Vegas. We'll go to San Diego. We plan in a trip to go to Salt Lake City soon. You know, we just like getting out there. We've been to the Grand Canyon. We've been to Nashville. We've been to Colorado. We've been to New York. So that's what we do. We travel the world, Jet Set. 
Well, Sean, man, this has been an awesome conversation. I could keep going and keep going because I'm learning a lot. And um, and I know the folks who listen will, too. I wonder uh, before we before we close it out, where can people find you online if they want to be part of the investment opportunities you have going, if they want to learn more about the investment business and how they can grow their own in that environment? Maybe you get part of uh, be part of um, the blind spot app. Mm-hmm. You know, where can yeah. they find you online? Yeah, absolutely. Look me up, Sean Randolph on LinkedIn. Um, like I'm on LinkedIn all the time. So if you want to have a conversation, if you want to send me a presentation about your business, or even if you're just like, I don't know, I have this idea written on a napkin. What do you think about it? Like, I'm not to just plug one more time, something that we're trying to do with GSI is we're not trying to be the type of investors that only talk to you when it's convenient or when we see dollar signs, right? We want to build the ecosystem within the multicultural section. So hit us up hit me up and uh, I'll direct you where I can for resources. And if your idea is really fire and the numbers make sense and all that, Hey, we're going to have some serious conversation. Very nice. I think um, the the thing I keep hearing over and over again is you're trying to build an ecosystem. Yeah. You're trying to, you're trying to build what doesn't exist right now. And I think that's super powerful. Mm. Any uh, final thoughts you want to leave cats with before we close it out? Uh, man, just, just a thanks to you. You know, uh, you, you've, you've been, you've watched me throughout a, a long part of this process. I mean, you were there when I started the first grant writing business. I remember I remember hitting you up and asking you about it. And I think I was trying to figure out LLC versus sole proprietorship and all that. So, I mean, you've, you've been around and been supportive and, and been a, uh, a ear to listen to through a lot of this process. So shout out to you. Thank you. And, and I like what you're doing with this podcast. So yeah. All right, man. Thanks so much, Sean. Well, this is the Breaking the Glass podcast. We've been here with Sean Randolph, and hopefully you guys enjoyed the conversation. Um, Thank you guys so much. We'll see you next time. Peace.